Well, we are continuing our look at hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. Last week, we started with the qualifications of a faithful Bible interpreter. And this week, we're going to go to part two. And Lord willing, we'll finish this today. So last week, we were looking at, we started with three qualifications. Anybody remember the three qualifications for a faithful Bible interpreter that we saw last week? A little pop quiz this morning to get you awake. You must be born again, yes. Anybody remember the rest? You must have the Holy Spirit. Be illumined by the Holy Spirit. You must be obedient. Those are the three we looked at last week. Today we're going on to the fourth qualification for a faithful Bible interpreter. You must have an earnest desire. An earnest desire. This is probably something you already know, but Bible study is hard. It's hard work. It takes effort. Intense concentration takes many hours of study. And that requires that you put off easier tasks, tasks that don't require the same level of effort and work. Bible study requires that you remove distractions, things like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, television, your cell phone. And yes, even sometimes the children need to go to another room so you can be in the Word and you can study you have to get rid of a multitude of distractions so that way you can focus on the study. John MacArthur said, there is no avoiding it. Studying the Bible is hard work. The Holy Spirit is not going to zap us as we stroll through the park or slouch in front of a television set. Effective Bible study doesn't happen by accident. You're not going to accidentally slip into it. It is the result of intentional, personal discipline. And this is why it's really good means of sanctification. Not just because you're studying the Word, but because it requires that you are engaged in constant self-denial. I'm not going to go over and do these other things. I'm going to focus on this. Those things are easier, and because they're easier, they're sometimes more enjoyable in the moment. Bible study requires that you crucify your flesh that you resist the urge for cheap entertainment, that you put off your satisfying your other desires, and you be content to slog through hours of effort to gain the prize of understanding just a few verses of God's Word. And oftentimes, it's our desires that really mess us up, that really make Bible study hard. There are some desires that we have that actually hinder our ability to study the Bible and hinder our, well, our desire to study the Bible too. The first one that really hinders us is our desire to be entertained. And this could be, there, there's an element of this that could be good in the sense that sometimes we come to the text to study with the desire of finding something new and exciting. I want to find this new golden nugget of truth that I've never seen before. Some tidbit that will give us this aha moment. And we want that because, well, it's exciting to find something new. It's exciting when something dramatically changes our understanding and our perspective. And that's what we're looking for when we come to the Bible. We're looking for something exciting. I'm looking to be entertained, to have something excite me again. It's the same desire that leads us to constant internet surfing, continual scrolling through social media, channel flipping on the television. I'm looking for something to entertain me. We live in a society that's constantly seeking to be entertained by the next shiny object. And oftentimes we carry that desire into our study of the Bible. We want the Bible to be a distraction, to distract us from the world around us. 
But here's the reality. The hard work of Bible interpretation is not always exciting. There are some times where it's difficult, laborious, repetitive. And if you're looking for something exciting, you will find hard, the hard work of Bible study to be boring. Let me give you an example. How many of you did block uh, line diagramming as kids in middle school? Anybody? How many of you found that to be exciting? Okay, one or, <laughs> one or two nerds in the room found it exciting. But there are elements of it that are not fun. Scouring and reading through multiple lexicons to determine the meaning of some tiny little preposition to figure out how it's functioning in the sentence isn't always fun. Reading entries and multiple grammars to help make sense of a unique grammatical construction, and then you read through a grammar and you have no idea what the author said. It's written in English, but it sounds like it was written in Farsi. And then you have to go and try to figure out what he's saying. The person looking for something exciting and to be entertained is merely avoiding boredom. We shouldn't study God's Word as a form of entertainment to avoid boredom. And by the way, did this blew my socks off when I found this out. Did you know that boredom is sin? Boredom is sin. Boredom occurs when a person is not satisfied with God's providential giving of work and assignments and tasks. When God has given me something that I don't think is exciting, that I don't think is fun, I don't want to do this. I say I'm bored. God has not given me something that keeps me entertained, that keeps me engaged. It's not exciting. It doesn't meet my level and my standard of what I think I should be doing right now. And tasks that are not entertaining and exciting are thus avoided. I'm not going to go do Bible study today because watching television is more exciting. Facebook is more entertaining. I'll sit here and scroll my Facebook feed rather than go study the Bible. Not only do we avoid those tasks, but we minimize them and do them half-heartedly. I don't find this exciting, so I'm going to get through this as quickly as I can and I'm not going to put a lot of effort into it because this is not exciting to me. This is boring. When entertainment is the goal of your Bible study, the results are often disastrous because you don't put the effort in you're supposed to or you just don't go do it at all. You can't come to the Bible to be entertained. The other hindering, another hindering desire, there's three of these, is a desire for emotional experience. We go to the text not because we're seeking some tidbit of new understanding, but because we seek an experience from the text. You know, you come to church, or you go to Shepherd's Conference, and you hear preaching, and if the pastor is doing a, giving a great sermon, how do you know it's a great sermon? Most of the time, people think of a good sermon as a sermon that causes you to experience a range of emotion. And so when the pastor starts preaching hard on you and you feel the weight of it and you're like, oh, this hurts, but I love it. And then you go from hurting to joyful because he now encourages you with the text. Those are the sermons we say are the best. And any one biblical text while you're studying it can cause you to experience this range of emotions from joy, peace, assurance, gladness, gratitude, sorrow, fear, and then some passages even make you feel terror. And we sometimes equate emotional experience as being evidence that I've got it. 
that I've actually gained something from the text. The emotional experience is what tells us the word is affecting us. If I didn't feel it, I didn't get it. This is experientialism. And it's not a proper way to interact with the word of God. Seeking after an emotional experience will often drive the interpreter to certain conclusions only so they can have an emotional experience. Even when the grammar and the syntax indicate the very opposite. I'm going to hold on to this conclusion because it feels good, because I like the way it makes me feel, rather than holding on to the interpretation that the text demands I come to. And this honestly happens with pastors. They see something in the text that moves them. It gives them some kind of emotional experience. And they go and look for evidence in the grammar and the syntax. They go look for commentaries that agree with them, and they can't find evidence for it anywhere. But it's just too good to pass up. This will really tug at their heartstrings. So they preach it anyway. You'll do the same thing. If your desire is to have an emotional experience, if you think that the emotional effect of the text is what's most important, the danger is not just getting the wrong interpretation, but it also causes you to lose the drive to study. Because what happens when you go into the text and you spend hours studying and you don't have an emotional experience? When your study doesn't produce an emotional response, but it kind of falls flat emotionally, now do you want to go study anymore? What you came to the text for, you didn't get person who's looking for an emotional experience will abandon their study and they'll call it fruitless and unnecessary because it doesn't give them the emotional high they're looking for. Third one, desire for mystical merit. I couldn't come up with another way to say it, but I'll explain that. That'll make sense in a minute. Others come to the text of scripture as more of a ritual, viewing their engagement with the text as a religious act or some kind of ceremony. The text is the instrument which God is going to use to bestow some mystical, spiritual benefit. And through the study and meditation on the text, God will infuse the interpreter with grace that will enable and empower them. Here, the meaning of the text is not the goal. It's not the meaning of the text that produces the effect. Here, it's the act of studying. That God works and provides spiritual merit through the process and the act of reading and studying the Bible. The meaning you derive from the text, that's an ancillary benefit. I just need to be engaged in the act. The meaning here is almost completely ignored. Think of a Lectio Divina. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The Catholic Church actually has, an, has a, a phrase to explain this idea of receiving merit or grace or benefits from doing the acts. It's a Latin phrase, ex opere operata. It literally means from the working of the work. And this is what they teach on their sacraments, that merely by going through the act of the sacrament, you receive infused grace. It's the act that's important. But that won't be sufficient to energize your study of the Bible. In fact, it'll do the opposite. It'll deprive you of any true motivation for study. If all I have to do is engage in the act of study, and the conclusion I reach doesn't matter, then this desire will cause me to take shortcuts, 
in my study? Why would I focus on the difficult passages? Why would I do the really, really hard and challenging work if all I have to do is engage in the act? I'll pass over difficult passages, pass over difficult grammatical constructions. I don't need those. I just need to engage in the act. It'll rob you of your desire to be diligent in your study. Because here your goal is merely to perform some acts, not find the meaning of the text, not apply that truth to your life. None of these desires should be entertained, the emotional experience, the desire for mystical merit, none of these desires will give you a motivation and the fuel that you need to be a faithful interpreter. If you want to be a faithful interpreter, that diligence that's required comes from a right desire. John MacArthur Constant diligence comes right on the heels of a real desire. God didn't give you an inspired word so that you can have a feeling, flee from boredom, or facilitate some mystical ritual. He gave you his word so that you could come to know him, so that you could have a relationship with him. What you need is a hunger in your heart, a passion for knowing God through his word. Ask yourself, how much do you really want to know God? Where is this desire on your priority list? You come to the text with a desire to know the author of the text, the ultimate author of the text. Is that true? Do you come to the text to know God? Not just to have some information, not just some facts that you can throw at a Bible study, but to genuinely get to know God. What does that mean to know someone? How do you know if you know somebody? Here's one way. It means you can predict what they're going to do. You know how they'll respond to something. If you know your spouse, husbands, if you know your wife, you know what she likes. You know what she doesn't like. You know what restaurants you can take her to and what restaurants will just make her mad. She doesn't want to go. You know what she's willing to eat, what she's not willing to eat. Someone can come and tell you something, and you'll say, don't tell her that. She will not be happy about that. Or, hey, you need to go tell my wife what you just said. She'll love that. You know how they're going to answer a question before they even answer it. Or they'll start their answer, and you'll finish the sentence for them. Do you know God like this? You get to know your spouse because you love your spouse. And because you love them, you have this desire to show that love and affection through how you behave. And the only way you can show that affection is if you know your spouse. And you show that love and affection because, or in this way, you know what to do when they're sad. You know them well enough that when they're sad, you know how to put a smile on their face. You know what things you can do to comfort them, to care for them. That's how you show that you love them. That's love demonstrated. In fact, learning about your spouse is not only what love does, it's also a means for growing in your love for your spouse. If your marriage is struggling, just a little tidbit here, and that love seems like it's lost, spend some more time trying to learn about your spouse so you can act in a loving way towards them. Learn more about them and let what you learn change the way you behave towards them and act in a loving way towards them. And as you do that, the feelings of love will grow.
to feel love, you must first know the object of your love and then act in a way that is loving. So what does that have to do with the Bible? When you come to the Bible, we come to the text to learn more about God because we desire to love him more. And we desire to demonstrate that love and affection, how we live, how we speak, how we act, how we pray, how we worship, how we treat others. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, we should grow in our obedience to God. As we know and obey more, our love and our affection for him grow. And loving God, when you go through Scripture, loving God is always connected to some level of obedience. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Well, how do you do that? How can you love God like that? Now, just a little context here for Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel had come out of Egypt, and they were still in the wilderness. And the first generation, the people that actually got out of Egypt, remember they left Egypt and they went into the wilderness and they were so faithful to God and they were so loving towards him that, you know, he said, I just can't believe you are my people. Remember how wonderful they were? Okay, no, they, they, no actually that's not what happened. By the time Deuteronomy was written, God had already killed off the entire first generation, save like two people. This is the second generation. They were not alive when God gave Moses the law. And so now Moses is going to give five sermons through the book of Deuteronomy, restating the law for this new generation. And throughout the, throughout the book, this love of Yahweh rings just loudly. It's repeated over and over and over again. How do you love Yahweh, your God? Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Let's go to verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. How do you love God? Know his word and obey it. Fill your heart, fill your mind with his word so that you think God's thoughts after him. That's how you do it. Deuteronomy 11, you shall therefore love Yahweh your God. How? And keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments all your days. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. And it will be that if you listen obediently, Obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all of your heart and your soul. You see how he repeatedly connects loving God with obedience, knowing the word and obeying. Deuteronomy 11, verse 22. For if you are careful to keep this entire commandment, which I am commanding you to do, to love Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cling to him, knowing and obeying God, Knowing and obeying the truth is loving God. And it's interesting because the, he actually gives the opposite of this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 3, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, speaking of a false prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, for Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. To love God is to reject the lies of the false teacher and to cling to what is true. 
Deuteronomy 19, verse 9, if you be careful to do all this commandment, which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to walk in his ways all your days, then you shall add three more cities for yourself beside these three. Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, in that I am commanding you today to love Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. There's no such thing in the book of Deuteronomy as loving God absent and apart from obedience to his word. And it's interesting, you get into the book, into the New Testament, and Jesus says, if you love me, you will, at the root of faithful Bible interpretation, is a desire, an earnest desire to love God, to love him more. And it's not just an earnest desire to love God, there's an earnest desire to grow. If we recognize that we are sinners, and God has a perfect standard, and none of us have perfectly followed that standard, then it follows that a genuine love for God and a desire to obey his commands will produce an earnest desire to grow in sanctification. This is what Peter explicitly says should be a reality in the life of a believer, constant growth. This is a little long, but you know this passage. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't expect you to be perfect in this life, but he does expect you to be growing. Notice at the end of that, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, you might say, say it this way, if these qualities are yours and are growing, you're becoming more, they're becoming more and more abundant in your life. The idea that Peter's expressing here is that you should grow until these qualities are overflowing. Until you have a, an abundance of them in your life. And you say, yeah, Peter, but how do I do that? How do I grow to make these abundant? Peter answers, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Here Peter says you should long for the pure milk of the word. Growing in your relationship to Christ, growth in the Christian life, happens through the word of God. The Spirit works through His Word to sanctify and to grow people. And a Christian who's not studying the Word of God, who's not in the Bible, is a Christian who is not growing. You're regressing. Peter describes this as a strong desire. He says you are to long. This refers to a strong desire for something with the implication of needing. And he illustrates this strong desire by comparing it to a child, a newborn baby, who longs for milk who longs for food, has that strong desire for food. How does a child long for food? Well, first, it's an impatient desire. Babies want to be fed right now. They're not content to wait. You can't tell your newborn, give me 20 minutes. They don't care about your 20 minutes. They're hungry. Not only is it an impatient desire, it's an overwhelming desire. It surpasses all other desires to the extent that they forget the other desires. When the child is hungry, you might be able to distract them for a moment. 
But eventually, it's going to come right back to the fact that they're hungry. You can't distract them for very long. They want it now. And you're not going to be able to play games anymore. Third, it's a growing desire. The longer they go without food, the more they want it. And then when you give them food and they grow, their desire for food becomes more. The older and the bigger they get, the more food they want. Shouldn't those three describe your desire for the Word of God? Peter says our earnest desire to grow should result in an impatient, overwhelming, and growing desire for God's Word. Not to have an emotional experience, but to know the truth, to apply that truth to our lives so that we can love God more with every thought, every word, every desire, every act. Let me say it another way. We come to the divine revelation of Scripture to behold God in all of His glory. I want to see God for who He really is. And as as we view His glory, as we see who God is and we come to know Him, we are transformed into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You want to grow? Get in the Word. Study the Word so that you can know God, so that you can obey Him. That's the fourth qualification. You must have an earnest desire. The fifth qualification for a faithful Bible interpreter. You must study diligently. You must study diligently. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Notice he says you are to be diligent. The word here refers to making haste. Same word we saw in 2 Corinthians 7 at the beginning of verse 11. To make haste. To act quickly. Paul uses this in 2 Timothy. You remember Paul wrote 2 Timothy while he was in prison? And he was expecting to be executed shortly? And he wanted to see his friend Timothy again? And he wrote twice. Be diligent to come to me soon. Be diligent to come before winter. He writes to his friend Timothy and says, Timothy, I don't have a lot of time. And I don't know when I'm going to go. Get here quick. Speed and haste require you to be intentional. Timothy, don't be lackadaisical in your travel. Get here now. Take pains. Make every effort. Uh, One lexicon says, The word here in 2 Timothy refers to being especially conscientious in the discharging of an obligation. Be zealous, eager, take pains, make every effort. Be conscientious. Paul applies this word here in 2 Timothy 2.15 and says, Make every effort, take every pain, leave no stone unturned so that you can stand before God as an approved workman. Workman here refers to an agricultural labor, someone who's engaged in a very, very difficult task, who's engaged in hard work. And the difficulty of the task doesn't allow for slack, lazy, half-hearted effort. It requires complete diligence, effort, 110% of your effort. Why? Because God is going to be the judge of your work. You can't go before God and say, well, I didn't obey those commands because... I didn't have time to learn what they mean. You can't disobey God and turn around and say, well, 
that's what this pastor said. Because then he's going to remind you of all the time you spent doing other things. And he's going to remind you how you have more access to the Bible than any generation in history. You're to be diligent so that you can present yourself to God and not be ashamed. Another way of saying, so that you won't be embarrassed when you stand before God. Laziness and the labor of the interpretation of Scripture results in faulty conclusions. It results in speaking for God when He has not spoken. It results in you ascribing things to God that God has never said. The faithful Bible interpreter makes, takes every pain, makes every effort to accurately handle the word of truth. This word here is one Greek word. Accurately handling, it's one Greek word. It refers to cutting it straight. It's used to refer to a mason cutting a stone and making it straight. It's used to refer to a farmer cutting a furrow, a straight furrow for seed. And here, Timothy is to cut straight the word of truth. To accurately divide means to get the correct meaning of the text and how it applies to your life. There's no twisting. There's no bending it. There's no distorting it. Cut it right down the middle. Get it right. Give your full energy and attention to get it right. Be diligent as you endeavor to ascertain the meaning of the text. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter what effort you have to exert. Your goal is, I'm going to get this right. I will take every pain to do it. John MacArthur again, the diligent believer in this context, the diligent teacher, gives maximum effort to impart God's truth as completely, as clearly, and as unambiguously as possible. He gives unreserved commitment to excellence in examining, interpreting, explaining, and applying God's word. And you do that because you will stand before God and you will be judged for how you engage with the text. And when he looks at your conclusions, you don't want to have to be embarrassed by what you said about it. That's what Paul describes as being ashamed. If you want to be a faithful Bible interpreter, you need to be diligent. You need to engage in diligent study. Make every effort to get it right. By the way, if you have questions, you guys can stop me. I feel like I've been talking forever. Yeah, it's better to get it right the first time. He, he was talking about a stone. If you cut the stone wrong, you have, you've got to start over again. Yeah, you, not only do you appreciate it, but then you apply it far better. When you go and you, you see it for yourself and you're convicted by it, you're, that you're convicted, that is what this text says. It's one thing for a preacher to tell you what it means. It's another thing for you to go and look at the text and come to that conclusion and be confident that's exactly what it says. And you'll apply it better and you'll appreciate it more. And that'll drive, that'll give you that earnest desire for more. Anyone else? We've looked at you need to have an earnest desire you must study diligently. This one's going to seem obvious. You must pray. The reformer, Huldrych Zwingli, I probably mispronounced his first name, used to hold a, a daily Bible study where he would teach pastors and students how to study the Bible from the original languages. It was an hour a day. He would do every day except for Fridays and Sundays. And he would always begin the session the same way. He would begin the session with prayer. We actually have the prayer recorded. Here's his prayer. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, 
Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Isn't that a prayer we should all be praying? Something like it? Now you'll remember last week we looked at the second qualification. You must be illumined by the Holy Spirit. This qualification is a necessary and logical outcome. If my ability to interpret the Bible, if my understanding of the Bible is based upon His illumination, then I have to recognize that I'm completely dependent upon Him to understand the text. And so before I go into the text, I'm going to pray. And when I find difficulties in the text, I'm going to pray. And I need to keep running back to Him in prayer. I need to keep running back to Him in prayer because well, I'm a sinner. I need him to guard me from error, from coming to the wrong conclusions, from presuming things in the text that are not actually in the text. Have you ever had someone tell you something about the text that wasn't true, and you believed it until you went back and saw it correctly? I need to pray that he would offset and compensate for my sinful inclinations, that he would... Re- overcome the disastrous effects of sin on my mind. You know, like getting distracted. Prayer is evidence that a Bible interpreter recognizes that they are, in fact, dependent upon God. Prayerlessness is evidence of prideful self-sufficiency. When I don't pray, it's because I think I can do it on my own. I don't need God for this. And prayer and God's Word are two sides of the same coin. And when you go into Scripture and you look at what Scripture says about prayer and studying the Bible, like, you know, Psalm 119, the whole chapter, all 175 verses, is about the Word of God. Do you know how many times he prays in the middle of that psalm? I didn't count either, but I'm just going to give you an idea. Listen to his prayer. He says it over and over and over again. Psalm 119, verse 12, "'Blessed are you, O Yahweh, teach me your statutes.'" Verse 26, I have recounted my ways, and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Verse 33, instruct me, O Yahweh, in the way of your statutes, that I may observe it to the end. Verse 64, the earth, O Yahweh, is full of your love and kindness. Teach me your statutes. Notice the recurring theme here. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 124, deal with your slave according to your loving kindness, and teach me your statutes. Verse 171, let my lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Do you see how the psalmist is not going to the Word of God on his own? He's opening up the Word of God and he's praying, Lord, teach me your statutes. Help me understand this. Show me what this means. The psalmist recognizes he couldn't be a faithful interpreter without prayer. In Acts 6, The apostles realized that the Hellenistic widows were not being cared for, and they understood that was an important thing to care for the widows, but they said that's not what we should be focused on. And so they appointed seven men, we would say they're proto-deacons, seven men who would care for the widows. But what were the apostles going to focus on? Acts 6 verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the Word. Now think about that. These are apostles. These are the guys who wrote the book. 
These are the ones who were empowered by the Spirit for their preaching. Just four chapters earlier, Peter gets up and preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people are saved. These are the guys that the Spirit was working miracles and wonders through. And yet the apostles viewed their ministry of the Word, and the first thing they said they needed to do is pray. That's the order it's put in. We're going to devote ourselves first to prayer and then the ministry of the Word. If that's true of the apostles, that they need to be in prayer to do the ministry of the Word, how much more is it true for you and I that we need to be in prayer every time we come to the text, every time we study? But of course, then that brings you to the age-old debate. Okay, which is more important? Is it more important to pray or is it more important to study? More important to pray or more important to read? And someone will say, yes. Charles Spurgeon had another way to answer that question. Someone asked him, Mr. Spurgeon, what's more important? Should I pray or read? And his answer was another question. What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? You need both. This was understood from the earliest days of the church, that faithful Bible interpretation requires prayer. Augustine, another long quote, Augustine, students of our revered scriptures must be taught to recognize the various kinds of expression in Holy Scripture, to notice and memorize the ways in which it tends to say things, and especially, this is paramount and absolutely vital, to pray for understanding. In the literature which they study, they read that God gives wisdom, and from his face there is knowledge and understanding, and it is from him, too, that they have received even their commitment to study, provided that it is accompanied by holiness. What was paramount in Augustine's mind? Prayer. There's no true faithful Bible interpretation that is not bathed, marinated, soaked, and baptized in prayer. You must be praying. John MacArthur, no Christian should ever look down at the Word without first looking up at, that, at the very source of that Word and asking for guidance. To engage in Bible study without prayer is presumption, if not sacrilege. I love the opening of that. You should never look down at the Word without first looking up to the source. Because when you do, it is presumption at its worst. That's the fifth qualification. Sorry, sixth qualification for faithful Bible interpretation. You must pray. Seventh one, you must fear. Isaiah put it a different way. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, he says, Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble, and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. That word there at the end, trembles. You know what it means? It means to tremble, to shake. Same word was used in Exodus 19.18, describing the Mount of Sinai shaking at the presence of God. Even mountains tremble before God. It's always used, it's also used to describe a state of terror or panic. 1 Samuel 14, 15, describing the enemy army. And there was a trembling in the camp. The ESV translates this a little bit differently. It's pretty good. And there was a panic in the camp. 
This term describes intense fear or panic that results in the person shaking and trembling. Four times this word is used to refer to a person who comes to the word of God. And it describes them in fear, trembling before God's word. In Isaiah 6, 6, they've heard the word of God and they are now repentant and sorrowful. That's why he said contrite of spirit. In Ezra 9 and 10, the term is used to refer to the leaders who agree with the law of God and fear his judgment for disobedience. This fear isn't the fear that you have of, you know, a king cobra. It's a holy reverence for his word. It's an awe for his word. Dr. Clausen from TMS says, The single greatest evidence of spiritual regeneration the single greatest stimulus for accurate interpretation and the single greatest guarantee of faithful Bible interpretation is a fearful reverence for the Word of God. This fearful reverence recognizes the Bible for what it really is and submits to that authority without exception. I was thinking about some of the false teachers today. Men like Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland and the mass of the rest of them. Out of all the qualifications, this is what they're missing. Is a fear and a reverence for God's Word. A faithful Bible interpreter understands that the Bible is the actual words of their Creator. A Creator who judges righteously. He is perfect. And his wrath is awesome and fearful, and you are going to go and see what he says, and you're going to go and tell other people what his word says. That should cause all of us to tremble. There should be a fearful reverence about approaching the Bible. Jeremiah Burroughs, Oh, the word of God has more of God's name in it than all the world besides. Take heaven and earth, the whole creation altogether has not as much of the name of God as the word of God has. There is more of God, there is greater and more divine luster in the word of God than there is in heaven and earth. If you fear God's word, you need fear nothing else. Do you come to the word of God with a fear, with an awe and a reverence? Or do you view it just as another book? If you're going to be a faithful Bible interpreter, you need to have some fear. Yeah. You won't be satisfied. You'll never find satisfaction in your works and your effort if it's attached from a desire to love God. If it's all about me and my feelings and what I experience, you're going to walk away empty every single time and disappointed. You've got to go in with the right desire. All right, anyone else? All right, well, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have given a very clear revelation of yourself, and you've done that so that we can come to know you, that we can come to understand more of you, that we can love you, that we can have access to you through Christ. And so, Father, as we come and as we study how to study the Bible, that you would help us to be faithful Bible interpreters, that we would come with a right desire, that we would come in prayer and humble dependence upon you, and that uh, we would diligently worked to obtain the truth of your word, that we would not speak about you or for you in a way that you have not spoken, and that we would glorify you in all that we do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.